0: Welcome to this episode of the Australian Naval History podcast series, where we examine important events in the Royal Australian Navy's history. Hello, I'm Professor Peter Stanley from the University of New South Wales, Canberra, at the Australian Defence Force Academy. And because we're in lockdown, we're recording this episode from five different locations, so you'll excuse any quality issues. Well, 2020, of course, will be remembered as the year the world was in the grip of the coronavirus. Just over a hundred years ago, from April 1918 to the middle of 1919, the world was similarly afflicted by a novel influenza pandemic, which was commonly called the Spanish flu, although it had nothing to do with Spain. It would lead to the global deaths of at least 50 million people. In this episode of the Australian Naval History podcast series, we look back at the role the Royal Australian Navy played in mitigating the effects of the Spanish flu in the South Pacific. This was to be Australia's first overseas humanitarian assistance operation. And to discuss this story, I'm joined by Dr. Steve Bullard, a historian at the Australian War Memorial, a valued colleague of mine from my time at the memorial. And Steve wrote in 2017 the official history in their time of need Australia's Overseas Emergency Relief Operations, 1918 to 2006. We're also joined by Commodore Mike Dowsett, a former naval dentist who, during his career, headed the Navy's medical services and has written extensively on its history. And finally, Commander Neil Westphalen, a retired naval physician who has also written and has written extensively on RAM history, uh, and is also a, a PhD candidate at UNSW Canberra. So thank you to all three gentlemen for joining us today. First off, Neil, a bit of background. Can you tell us what the Spanish flu was and why it was called the Spanish flu and why was it so deadly? Well, thanks, Peter. Um, By way of background,
1: um, there's seven types of flu virus, of which only one causes uh, pandemics in humans. This one's got two surface proteins that coat the genetic material inside. There's at least 18 types of the H protein and 11 types of N protein, which gives you about 200 odd permutations. The one that causes pandemic flu is the one that's got the H1N1 proteins. It's always with us, and it normally only poses a concern um, to the elderly, people with bad lungs, and those with impaired immunity. However, the H1N1 virus isn't really good at copying itself. It genetically uh, drifts over time, which is why people get it over and over again. It's also why vulnerable people need a flu jab every year as opposed to uh, just a once-off like polio. Flu pandemics occur when uh, the virus changes in a way that the body's immune system still kicks in, but in so doing causes the lungs to fill up with fluid. People die either because they run out of uh, fluid-free lung to breathe with, or the fluid becomes infected with bacteria, so they die of pneumonia. One of the odd things about the 1918 pandemic is that it killed 20 to 40 year olds rather than the elderly. Um, a century later, we still don't really understand why, um, but the most likely reason is that it changed in a way that hit those whose immune systems had had less practice responding to previous flu viruses compared to older people. At the same time, because it's so contagious, the virus was spreading quite readily among people living in each other's pockets, such as military barracks and camps. In addition, ships were transporting thousands of people all over the world, bringing the virus with them. So that as a result, um, around about a third of the human race, or about 500 million people became infected, of whom around 20 to 50 million, or perhaps even up to 100 million uh, died. We don't really know where it started. Um, One theory is it began in US Army training camps in Kansas and went via their troop ships to Europe. Another possibility is it came to Europe via laborers imported from China. The first wave in April 1918 uh, was followed by a far more lethal second wave in October, and then a third wave which went worldwide from January 1919 as troops started their return home. Throughout this period, the virus continued to genetically drift, which may have made it even more lethal. The pandemic petered out by the end of 1919, um, most likely because it ran out of new cases to infect. As far as it got the name, um, there's a long tradition uh, of giving your enemy's name to a foul, loathsome disease. So uh, syphilis, for example, was called the Spanish or French or English pox, which none of which referred to um, owning your own STD. However, because no one in wartime Europe wanted to publicise the uh, operational havoc that the pandemic was causing, became the Spanish flu essentially because Spain was neutral.
0: Thank you. Uh, Turning now to Mike Dowsett, uh, I understand the Royal Australian Navy first came into contact with the Spanish flu when its uh, ships were were attached to the Grand Fleet in European waters. Can you explain what happened, Mike?
2: The experience of the RAN really highlights the worldwide nature of uh, what ships do. And, And in the First World War, there were three major units attached to the Grand Fleet. the were Battle Cruiser HMAS Australia and the Cruisers Sydney and Melbourne. Uh, however, the first contact with the, uh, the flu was not uh, in the area where the Grand Fleet was operating. It was on an Australian troop ship, which was off the west coast of Africa in October 1918. and. Uh, there are a, a small group of sailors who were sailing to uh UK to join well, one of those ships that I mentioned, and they were part of nearly a thousand uh soldiers, AIF soldiers, uh, and this small group, of which four hundred and eighty uh contract the disease, believed to have uh, been picked up from a port visit to Durban. Of the more than 20 that died, four were sailors. So that's the first contact the RAN had with the flu. Um, at about the same time, you had Australian destroyers operating out of Brindisi in the southern part of Italy, and they also became infected. And uh, the destroyer HMS Hewan while in Drydock in Genoa, suffered five deaths in late October, including two brothers who died within a few days of each other. Uh, in regard to the units of the Grand Fleet, uh, the principal medical officer of HMAS Australia made some uh, interesting comments. Uh, Australia, of course, had been... Uh, in the uh, UK since the early part of 1915 and during that time uh, he noted that uh, the Australians on board um, uh, the battle cruiser, noting that uh, about half the complement of the Australia uh, were Australians, the rest made up of Royal Navy either loan or transferred from the Royal Navy. He made a comment that in any of the epidemics, such as rubella, measles that always uh, came through every year, uh, far more Australians became sick proportionally to their number in the ship. Um, coming back to the period of 1918, in that year, he noted there were several epidemics of measles, rubella, scarlet fever, and um we we acquired this is him talking and we we acquired a certain amount of experience in dealing with them and part of that routine always consisted in spraying the li- living spaces with antiseptic. Um, coming to the Spanish flu, the so-called Spanish flu, he commented that later in the year we were visited by a much more serious form of influenza which began to spread very quickly on board. Spraying was again carried out, and the epidemic that he described says disappeared almost as if by magic. HMAS Australia was one of the few in the Grand Fleet which did not have to go into quarantine. Um, the, only, the other contact about the same time was the uh, cruiser HMAS Brisbane which at the time of the armistice was en route uh, to uh, Europe, having transited the Suez Canal, and it met up with the Australian destroyer squadron on the 26th of November uh, in the Greek islands. By the end of that month, 182 of Bruceman's complement were infected, and three of those died.
0: Thank you. There's... uh pause for thought there. Uh, I don't know that a magic solution is going to be available to us as it was to HMAS Australia. Um, Now turning to Steve Bullard, uh, the Spanish flu epidemic in Australia caused about just under what, 12,000 deaths. But what was the situation in the South Pacific Islands? Can you discuss Australia's uh, epidemic and how the South Pacific was affected by the pandemic?
3: Thanks, Peter. After news of the severe strain of the disease uh, had appeared in South Africa and elsewhere in October 1918, this was that second wave that Neil mentioned, uh, the Director of Quarantine, John Comston, instituted a maritime quarantine for Australia um, in that month. Now, this was to try and delay the entry of the disease into Australia, and there were other measures like current social distancing policies that were in place once that was breached and that was successful the maritime maritime quarantine until January 1919 when cases appeared in Victoria and then New South Wales and then spread across the country. Um, the number of deaths across Australia was probably higher than the 11,500 uh, or so that's often quoted uh, because Indigenous uh, uh figures weren't usually included in that number. Now, at the same time, in late October, New Zealand was also suffering from this second wave um, of the deadly strain of influenza, particularly in Auckland, and that spread through the country, subsequently leading to over 8,000 deaths. Now, the islands of the Pacific at this time, uh, they were dependent on maritime shipping for transport and for supply of goods, etc. And many of the islands that had regular contact with ships from Australia, such as New Guinea, Norfolk Island, New Caledonia, they were subjected from October 1918 to the Australian quarantine policies. And they, they, after that, largely escaped uh, this virulent strain that appeared during that second wave. Now, Fiji, Tonga and Western Samoa, they were regularly supplied by ships from New Zealand, and they did not escape the second wave. The means of transmission of this deadly wave to New Zealand is unclear, but it is clear that responsibility for spreading the disease to Fiji, Samoa and Tonga was SS Tulum. This was a 2,000 ton steamer that was used by New Zealand as a troop ship early in the war uh, that was now acting as um, a commercial ship to uh, take passengers and goods around the islands. Now, it left Auckland at the end of October on a regular voyage, uh, and this was right at the start of this outbreak of the virulent strain in New Zealand. When it arrived in Fiji on the 4th of November, it was subjected to a quarantine of sorts as there was some on board who had flu. But the local medical authorities didn't identify this flu with the severe Spanish flu, the pneumonic influenza that was really hitting New Zealand at the time. And so they allowed these people to disembark and other passengers to disembark and to, for goods to be unloaded, etc. The ship was then allowed to continue on its circuit around the islands, going on to Samoa on the 7th of November, Tonga on the 12th, and then back to Fiji by the 17th of November. Now, after each stop of the ship in the islands, the disease spread quickly as a result of contact with the crew and local passengers disembarking and then spreading the disease through their their communities as they returned home. There were estimates across these islands that, 80 to 95% of locals were infected with the influenza, but Samoa was the worst hit. It was estimated that 8,500 residents of Samoa died in a very short time from this second wave. Now, that represents 22% of the population of Western Samoa at the time. And by those figures, that made it the worst affected country per capita in the world.
0: Thanks, Steve. That's a very sobering story that you tell. Uh, Neil, these islands, as, as Steve suggests, had very different colonial administrations and perhaps different approaches to the pandemic. Uh, Neil, can I ask you to enlarge on those differences? I guess the
1: uh, the main thing that sort of stuck out is uh Samoa was is really in two parts. You've got the uh the part that was run by uh, New Zealand on one side and American Samoa on the other, um, and uh, I guess it will be true to say that the approach followed in um, on the New Zealand side was um, somewhat cavalier, um, um, in major contrast to uh, what happened on the uh, in American Samoa. In American Samoa, um, the um, the governor there was actually a uh, U.S. Navy uh, officer um, who found out that the, uh, that, that the pandemic was occurring uh, essentially through uh, radio traffic and he instituted a uh, very comprehensive lockdown that included having patrols of the beaches to ensure that um, uh, the amount of uh, travel between uh, American Samoa and um, New Zealand Samoa was, was uh, completely cut off. Um, the, um, and with the result that, um, uh, the, the lockdown, uh, in American Samoa lasted about, um, I think about nine or 10 months. And at the end of it, um, they had not, uh, had any whatsoever, um, as, um, uh, Steve's indicated, uh, the situation was completely different in, uh, on the New Zealand
0: side. They're very striking... Discrepancies between the two sides of Samoa. Uh,
1: yeah, and particularly, uh, particularly noting that there's only about twenty or thirty miles. Um,
0: separation.
1: Uh, difference, the separation between the two, uh, the two administrations.
0: And Steve also alluded to the the, the the large death rate among indigenous communities in Australia. I'm, I'm not medical, but I assume that there was some um, relevance to um, resistance to the to the uh, the virus.
1: Um, yeah there's a couple of, i understand there's a couple of cultural sort of attributes as well um one is that um uh the the fact that um uh, that, that these communities have been isolated for at least hundreds of years before uh Europeans started uh, discovering these islands um yeah you know, I think it's important to to consider the the um uh, the outbreaks uh, of the pandemic flu in, in that sort of setting—it um, was, you know, it was only sort of a century into uh, into that period. Mm. The other thing I believe uh, is that the um, the culture of on, on Samoa and I believe other islands was that if you had a sick family member, uh, you gathered all the other family members around to look after them, and if they died, then you got even more around. So um, clearly. Um, that sort of uh, cultural uh, um, aspect of how the, the virus uh, uh, spread um, would have been absolutely devastating.
0: Mm, indeed, thank you. Back, back to Mike Dowsett. Uh, Mike, uh, as you said that members of the Royal Australian Navy died of flu, can you tell us though what happened in the sloop HMAS Phantome, which was in Fijian waters at this time?
2: Just before I talk about the Phantome, in, in With regard to the differences between American Samoa and New Zealand administered Samoa, uh, the administrator and American Samoa offered help to the New Zealand administration who declined help. And uh, later on, in fact, in 2002, the New Zealand Prime Minister made an official apology to the people of Samoa for the maladministration. That uh, led to that disease. But coming to HMAS Phantome, she was a ship, a former Royal Navy survey ship, that was employed in 1918 in policing duties in that area. Uh, she was based uh, at Suva and she reported the first case of influenza on board on the 11th of November. So that coincides very neatly with the arrival of the Taloon a few days earlier. Of her ship's company of of 160, over half succumbed to the disease, but uh, there were no fatalities. Uh, The surgeon of Phantome noted that the use of nasopharyngeal throat gargles was probably the effect of a, um, and a turning point in uh, in making sure that uh, there were no deaths on board.
0: So there are good news stories in this uh, saga as well. Uh, returning to Dr Steve Bullard, um, the, the involvement of the New Zealand Authority seems to be quite crucial to this story. Steve, can you tell us about what happened between New Zealand and Samoa, especially in terms of assistance offered or, or not
3: offered? Um, sure. Uh, Mike mentioned the military governor in Samoa, Colonel Robert Logan, um, and he was uh, criticised after this for his failure to respond uh, quickly to the crisis in the country. He ended up um, leaving his position as administrator the, the following January, uh, January and being replaced. But by mid-November, he made a request to his government in New Zealand for assistance, uh, finally, um, once the situation had become extremely serious. But when he made that request, he actually specified that the assistance come from Australia. He was likely now aware of the strain that was being placed on the New Zealand medical system from their own outbreak, their own response to that second wave, and that Australian quarantine measures were at that time keeping this severe strain uh, at bay, which is probably why he specified that assistance come from Australia. Now Australia had no independent diplomatic representation at this time, of course. So the request was passed through the New Zealand Governor General to his counterpart uh, in Australia, and this, of course, was only possible because of the joint membership uh, of the British Commonwealth of Australia and New Zealand. At that time, uh, Prime Minister Billy Hughes was in uh, Britain dealing with the uh, end of the First World War, um, and. The request was received by the acting prime minister, William Watt. Now he had no precedent for a request of this kind for military assistance for, um, you know, emergency uh emergency responses there was no standing emergency committee etc so he passed the request on to uh, Walter Massey green who was at that time acting minister for trade and customs he green Massey Green was a good person to deal with the request because he was at that time managing the influenza influenza situation in Australia uh, he subsequently uh, consulted senior Navy officials and the Director of Quarantine, Cumston, to determine uh, a response and a course of action. Now, there wasn't a lot lot available to them, of course, at this time. There were no Hercule aircraft that they could uh, load materials on and and send off instantly. Um, But nevertheless, they agreed uh, very quickly that day um, that Australia would accede to the request for assistance and they notified the New Zealand government later that evening on the 20th of November. Uh, the Navy then ordered encountered to a sail the following morning to Sydney to prepare uh, for its part in the mission.
0: So really this is the beginning of that Australian humanitarian tradition that your official history traces.
3: Absolutely. It was the first time that Australian military forces had been involved in uh, emergency assistance after a a disaster or a pandemic uh, outside of Australia.
0: Something worth noting. Uh, So, Neil, uh, turning to the Royal Australian Navy's experience of this pandemic, can you tell us what happened in HMAS Encounter?
1: Um, Yeah, thanks, Peter. Um, Encounter um, had spent uh, the previous month operating out of uh, Fremantle uh, where she acquired um, 74 cases, uh, fortunately, without losing anyone. Um, When uh, they were tasked to uh, provide this this, uh, assistance, um, all personnel received uh, two doses of... um, an experimental vaccine from the brand new Commonwealth serum laboratories um, which uh, at the time was deemed partially effective but probably wasn't in hindsight um, because one of the things to remember uh, is that everyone thought flu was the flu was caused by uh, a bacteria rather than the virus so the, the flu vaccines they're talking about back then Um, aren't anything like the ones that we're talking about nowadays. As an aside, the uh, Commonwealth Serum Laboratories eventually became uh, CSL Limited, uh, which is a part owner of the world's um, second largest vaccine manufacturing company. Um, I don't know if they went through the same um, spraying routine that uh, Mike describes on Australia, but uh, I, um, my guess would be that they probably did something um, fairly similar.
0: And I believe that the, the new commanding officer of HMAS Encounter at the time was Captain Hugh Thring, who appears in this series from time to time. Would you like to say a few words about Hugh Thring? Yeah, um, it's
1: uh, he's uh, Captain Walter Hughes Charles Samuel Thring. There's a mouthful. Uh, He was born in Wilkeshire in England in 1873. Um, He'd entered the RAN in 1886 and uh, topped his uh, cadet class and uh, served as a uh, gunnery specialist. Um, In 1912, he transferred to the RAN uh, essentially because he was one of the uh, staff officers that got caught in the feud between um, uh, Admiral Charles Beresford and uh, Admiral Jackie Fisher. He was on the losing side and figured that his career wasn't going to go anywhere. On arrival in Australia, he became of immense value to Rear Admiral Creswell, uh, not only regarding the uh, administration needed to uh, uh, get the new fleet up and running, but also taking the first steps towards developing a uniquely Australian naval uh, doctrine. He's an officer of high intellect and original thought, He was well suited to the unconventional mission he was about to embark upon immediately on uh, taking command of the ship on the 23rd of November when the ship arrived in Sydney from Melbourne. So it was sort of dumped very much into uh, uh, the deep end. Um, After this mission, unfortunately, he only had command of encounter for four months before he went to uh, London as the uh, RAN liaison officer. He retired from the REN in 1922 and died in 1949.
0: Thanks. And continuing the Encounter story, Mike Dowsett, uh, it seems that there was a, a sense of urgency in getting Encounter to see. Can you tell us about that?
2: Yes, it was quite uh, amazing how quickly Encounter uh, got her act together and said um, the advice came in late November, uh, and in fact, on the twentieth November, the senior surgeon on encounter at Surgeon O'Neill was uh, given details of the object of the expedition. Uh, Steve mentioned Dr. cumston the Director of Quarantine, and so um, Surgeon O'Neill took it on his uh, own initiative to go and consult with Dr. cumston about uh, what may be the problem when they reached Samoa. And also, uh, it was advised to order more vaccine um, of the type that Neil mentioned, the uh, experimental vaccine. And uh, so by the time uh, that uh, Neil arrived in, in Sydney on the ship, there was a supply of... Penfold's Carrizo vaccine of double strength, which was added to the the stores taken on board. Now, the period of uh, arrival in Sydney um, was a a weekend, and the ship's company uh, loaded the ship over the Saturday Saturday evening, made difficult by a lot of commercial firms were shut, but the, the extent of the work that they did meant that the ship was able to sail uh, by 1600 on the Sunday afternoon.
0: And that neatly takes us to allow Steve Bullard to pick up the story. So Steve, when counter leaves Sydney, goes to Fiji and Samoa. Can you talk about what it did in those waters?
3: Yeah, the actual relief work that was going to be undertaken, in addition to the supplies and stores that were on board, was an Australian medical party that was transported in encounter. Uh, Now, that was divided into six sections, each with a junior medical officer and six orderlies. Uh, Most of these uh, medical officers were relatively new recruits into the Army Medical Corps. They were mostly from the from the army, and they had not experienced service in the battlefields of Europe. And I'm guessing many of them wouldn't have been overseas at all. So when Encounter arrived in Fiji at the end of November, um, Fiji, as Mike mentioned before, was suffering its own outbreak. The effects of the the visit of Toulon, um, you know, just weeks before, but. The local medical authorities there felt that the situation was under control, and so Encounter immediately uh, left for Samoa, which was the, the prime uh, target of its relief efforts. Even so, um, Thring left one medical section in Fiji that was going to travel off to Tonga because the situation there was, was particularly bad. Um, in the end, that particular medical section couldn't get to Tonga because of uh, ship breakdowns, etc. And they remained in Fiji and ended up assisting local authorities there when the situation worsened over the following weeks. Now as as Encounter was travelling towards Samoa, there was, as Mike mentioned earlier, there was little information that they had about the current situation in Samoa. So thinking the worst, Thring called for volunteers from among the ship's company on the on the voyage in order to strengthen the relief party. But when they finally arrived in Apia, uh, in Samoa, they found that the worst of the situation had actually passed. And so the 80 volunteers who had um, offered their services weren't required. Um, part of all of that stores that had been uh, loaded onto Encounter in Sydney were a whole lot of tents and blankets, which ended up not being used. But nonetheless, um, Thring offered local authorities uh, five tonnes of medicine and 20 tonnes of dry provisions, which were offloaded on that first day when they arrived. As for the relief uh, efforts itself, uh, the head of the Medical Relief Party was Surgeon Lieutenant F. Temple Gray. He established a headquarters and a laboratory in Arpia. And then he distributed four of the relief medical teams to coastal towns around the main islands um, in order to provide assistance around Samoa where it was needed. Um, Neil mentioned earlier that these medical teams couldn't cure influenza because it was unknown it was caused by a virus at that stage, but they were able to uh, treat secondary infections and other symptoms such as relief of aches, uh, coughs, fevers, uh, using typical drugs available at the time, such as aspirin, quinine, et cetera. Now, the, the members of the medical teams would often take over existing medical facilities, hospitals and clinics, etc. cetera, um, primarily because many of the local medics had themselves succumbed to the disease or indeed died. Or if they'd survived, they were extremely overworked and in need of a rest by this stage. Um, They also established makeshift hospitals uh, in heavily affected areas and offered various other kinds of assistance, such as disinfecting cemeteries, helping to bury the dead, conducting mosquito control around affected areas, etc. Now, the the four medical teams moved around according to the need around the islands and eventually concentrated back in Apia and left Samoa uh, on the 20th of January 1919 and they returned to Australia by commercial steamer because Encounter had just dropped them off and, and moved on. When they arrived back in Australia, they ironically faced their own nine-day quarantine before they were able to, to disembark after having provided relief efforts around the islands for uh, many weeks.
0: And as you say, the Encounter went on to Tonga. So, Neil Westphalen, what happened there? Um. It sounds like
1: a lot of it was very, very similar to uh, what Steve has already described. Um, encounter arrived on the 5th of December. They were also told that the worst of the epidemic had passed. Uh, Tonga's chief medical officer hadn't got back from Fiji. The only other uh, European doctor was on one of the other islands, which uh, meant that uh, they only had some Tongan um, dispensers or pharmacists and uh, medical students uh, and um, the uh, uh, most of whom were actually among the 500 dead that uh, Tonga had sustained. The situation on the other islands was was likewise unknown but it was thought to be fairly similar Uh, so under strict quarantine um, Encounter's crew unloaded some more medical stores and um, and uh, dropped off a medical team uh, before leaving for Suva on the 7th of December. Um, and although the team left behind did have to treat a few serious cases over the next three weeks, most of the island by then was convalescent. Um, the team returned to Samoa on the 26th of December and they went off to uh, Fiji a couple of days later.
0: Oh, thanks. Now, Neil, Neil, sorry, Mike Dowsett, uh, would you like to finish the Encounter story by talking about its return to Australia and especially, as Steve alluded, to the fact that they were returning to a country that was still in the grip of a pandemic?
2: Uh, yes, Peter. Uh, just picking up a few of the threads from what uh, has been mentioned just previously. Of course, the expedition was to help Samoa. The, uh, the reason that the ship called in at Fiji was it was essential to take on more coal. Uh, and it, coaling took place uh, during one day. And there was very strict quarantine imposed by uh, Tring, the captain, on recommendation from his medical officer, such that normally ships would have been coaled by native labourers, uh, this was not allowed, and coaling was done by Encounter's ship's company. Uh, uh, they then, uh, later on in the day, headed off to Samoa, which was their original um, destination. And also, uh, Thring took it on his own initiative to extend the expedition to, to go to Tonga when he learnt uh, what. Uh, the flu was doing and, and ravaging the population of Tonga. So that was why there were changes to the original uh, expedition. Uh, the members of um, Encounter Ships Company uh, didn't make any contact with people on shore in, in Fiji. There were armed guards to stop the native population uh, making any contact with the ship. and uh, Uh, And so uh, strict quarantine enabled uh, Encounter to be disease-free. When they were ordered to return to Australia, they uh, had no cases of influenza on board. Um, And in the same context of present-day travel, They also had to go into uh, quarantine. Uh, They arrived uh, and spent uh, nine days uh, in quarantine in Australia, uh, including uh, Christmas, and were released from quarantine on Boxing Day uh, with no cases.
0: So that's a happy ending. Uh, To conclude, then, can I ask each of you to offer final thoughts on this Australia's first overseas humanitarian assistance operation? Uh, First of all, Dr Steve Bullard.
3: Thanks, Peter. Um, We've mentioned before that um, this was the first time that Australian military forces had undertaken an emergency relief mission outside of Australia, but it didn't lead to a rush of similar missions after this. It was rather the exception that proved the rule. Other than several responses to volcanoes in the dependent territories of Papua New Guinea, the next such mission wasn't until 1960 after a cyclone hit the New Hebrides. And it was really only from the late 1970s that such relief missions to the Pacific became more frequent. Now it's quite routine, of course. Um, Finally, I'd just like to add uh, a personal touch. When I was undertaking research for my official history, I found a personal connection to the Encounter mission uh, in that my grandfather, Lance Bullard, was an able seaman um, in Encounter's company. Unfortunately, I didn't get the opportunity to talk to him about this, but we used to often talk about his, his other major contribution, uh, which was during the Second World War when he was a Navy diver, one of the Navy divers, who went down and located uh, one of the Japanese midget submarines during the attack on Sydney Harbour in 1942.
0: Thanks, Steve. Uh, Commodore Mike Dowsett. Uh Final thoughts from you?
2: The, the details of, uh, of what occurred have uh, given a fascinating insight on people um, using their own initiative to make decisions in something that was uh, a period of unknown um, examples of what was happening in Samoa, changing the thrust of the relief effort uh, including Tonga and application of very basic and strict uh, principles of quarantine. Uh, Much the same thing as what we're experiencing uh, today in Australia more than 100 years later.
0: Indeed, so perhaps we can learn from history.
2: Um,
0: Commander Neil Westphalen, your concluding thoughts please. I guess
1: mine sort of comes from uh, from both um, Steve and and Mike, um, I think the thing from um, Steve's uh, comments that really highlight things. I guess the overall theme is the extent to which nothing has really changed with respect to these sorts of things in the last century. Um, as Steve's indicated, it uh, refers to things like um, um, you know uh, using local health facilities and supporting the local health authorities and. Um, that's very, very much, uh, consistent with, um, how, uh, humanitarian aid and disaster missions, the health aspects of that, uh, are provided, uh, a century later. Um, the other part, I guess, is a follow on from, um, Mike relates to, um, the, um, extent to which, uh, the effectiveness of, of social distancing, quarantine, um, in preventing illness on one hand and uh, the, the threats posed to entire countries, um, whether they're small islands uh, with a, um, a small merchant ship um, a century ago or uh, passenger ships uh, in Australian waters a century later, uh, the more things change, the more things stay the same.
0: Indeed. Thank you, Neil. And also, uh, Neil, for your PhD thesis, I look forward to seeing reference to this episode in Chapter 3. I'm one of Neil's supervisors. Um, Sadly, that's all we have time for today. My thanks go to Dr. Steve Bullard, Commodore Mike Gassett, and Commander Neil Westphalen for a fascinating and expert discussion of this important and and timely anniversary. This podcast is produced by the Naval Studies Group at the University of New South Wales. Its production is supported by the Royal Australian Navy Sea Power Centre, the Australian Naval Institute, the Naval Historical Society of Australia and the Submarine Institute of Australia. Thank you for joining us. And if you like this episode, please rate it on your podcast app so that other people can learn of the Australian Naval History podcast series. Thank you and goodbye.